Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. We're back for another edition of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand and as always joined by our two co-hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Joe? Doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, and along with Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. Rich, I've been looking at your clock. I think it's one minute fast. I think it's just one minute <laughs> Just trying to keep you on, on your toes. I was going to put it like three hours ahead just to freak you out, but we're good. But but speaking of backdrops, are you in the booth right now? I am. Yeah. If, uh, if, if you're watching uh, on Facebook, let me see. Do the old flip camera really quick. Uh, I don't know if I can or not, but yeah, uh, I'm at the ballpark in beautiful Kane County right now. Here we go. Give us a little tour of the. It's uh, Northwestern oh, yeah. Medicine Field. Beautiful. Look at nice, that. gorgeous. Yeah. Gonna, it's gonna be a good day. Uh, who, we got, who we got today? The uh, the Kansas City Monarchs come to town for a three game series, and uh, we've only got ten more home games left on Wednesday. If I can do a little plug, on Wednesday, anyone named Bob or Emily can come to the ballpark for free. What's the significance of that? Uh, it's a it's a minor league promotion. We're just uh, we're just trying to appease people named Bob or Emily. So if you know any, please spread the word. Dean Hill, Our illustrious so- producer, needs to go. That's right. There we go. All right, we got we got one in. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to the first topic, which brings us to one of the pretty big problems in the country right now with student debt being so high. And the Wall Street Journal actually came out with a report that only a dozen law schools have graduates that are able to match their student debt with their salary after two years. With that, we bring in law professor and dean Cassandra Hill of Northern Illinois University College of Law. Dean Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Dean, yeah, as Joe mentioned, this Wall Street Journal report uh, got a lot of attention, and it, it, it reveals that only really a small handful of law schools uh, like Harvard, Stanford, and Penn results in students being able to pay off their debt after three years. Right. What was also revealing is that a lot of the other law schools, including top 30 law schools like Emory um, and GW results in graduates earning pay that is below their law school debt. So I know this is an issue that is near and dear to your heart as Dean of the College of Law at Northern. Mm-hmm. Um, but does this mean, does this study mean that only a small percentage of law students can actually afford law school? So, you know, let's, let's put it all in perspective. Really hardly any student can afford to pay for their entire graduate education up front whether that's for law school or any graduate program. And we know that most law students take out loans, even partial ones to attend law school. So we know that most students can attend law school with some financial assistance. But given the gap between the amount that is borrowed and the average starting salaries, these loans nowadays do have to be paid back over a longer period of time. What used to be a a 10-year repayment period that was more standard. Now it's a bit longer. So you have a student who may have 118000 on average 
borrowed debt for law school and a starting salary that on average is $72,500. There is a gap there. But again, over time, a longer amount of time, that amount can be paid. What we have to do as an institution and as administrators of law school is to make sure we are constantly thinking of ways that we can reduce the debt that students have to take on. So, Dean, that same article reveals that between 1985 and 2019, the average annual tuition of private law schools nearly tripled to $49,000, and that's adjusted for inflation. I have a couple questions for you as, as a follow-up to that. Why has the tuition gone up such at what some would call a pretty steep trajectory, and is law school just too expensive? That's a wonderful question. Thank you, Tina. And, you know, uh, most would argue that the costs have increased at law school in recent years due to the addition of more clinical and experiential learning um, um, opportunities for students to better prepare them for the practice of law. Also, there have been an increased um, addition of new faculty, right, so that you can keep that student-faculty ratio low. And at some schools, the need for more scholarships adds to that expense. Um, so just like any other institution where there's a budget where you have personnel expenses and operation expenses, a law school is no different. On one hand, we have administrative and support staff and faculty. We know they're critical you know, to the legal education program. On the other hand, we have operation expenses like those clinical programs, library resources. We want to make sure our faculty and students have access to research platforms and also providing some scholarships. So that's where the expense comes in. But not every law school passes on that expense in full to their students. Right. So as a university, we have decided intentionally to absorb some of that expense rather than passing it on to our students. So our school, I would say, is not too expensive. And there are other schools out there like us that have an access and affordability mission, you know, that's ingrained in, in, in their school purpose and for their very existence. And that's what we are striving to do at NIU. Dude, let's pick up on that, because as a proud NIU College of Law uh, alum, class of uh, 95, and also as a very proud member of the College of Law's Board of Visitors for many years, I am very familiar with uh, our mission statement, and in particular, your efforts since you've been dean, to make sure that this public law school remains accessible, remains uh, diverse, very importantly, and remains, um, you know, committed to achieving things like, you know, uh, achievements in public interest law. So why is Northern able to maintain these goals of accessibility while also being cognizant of the increasing costs of going to law school? And, and how are you doing that? So we, we make it a priority. So, right, the thing that you, that's truly important important to you, you, you prioritize and you make sure it happens. And, you know, as I just mentioned that we absorb some of the costs, the operating and personnel costs of maintaining a high quality and reputable legal education, rather than passing it on to our students. We are still the most affordable law school in the state of Illinois. We've been recognized as a best value law school time and time again. And we intend to stay that way. 
because of our access mission. Um, in terms of helping our students with any debt that they take on to attend law school, we're making sure that we better educate them about what it means to finance your legal education and counsel them through partnerships. We have one with Access Lex, which is an organization that provides financial workshops to students as well as helps guide them in determining which law school is the best um, one you know, decision for them. We're also working extremely hard on the scholarship and grant end to make sure that we work with alums like you, Rich, and other prospective donors to give back to the institution so that we can provide those scholarships to students who are in need and to students in underrepresented populations. We're also making sure that we market um, debt repayment programs to our students even better. Um, uh, those schools that have higher tuition, I, my hope is that they're doing the same, as well as they're putting, um, in, introducing some new programs for their students to help them repay this type of debt. We at NIU want to make sure our students have options. They have options upon graduation, that if they want to go into public service, work in public interest, take a lower salary, they can do so and still have a comfortable lifestyle as well as a rewarding career. So, Dean, just switching gears for our last question, um, we were talking about before the show the fact that you just started back with in-person classes last week. Mm -hmm. um, you also announced that um, you may end up returning to remote learning if COVID numbers continue to spike and the situation warrants uh, going back to remote learning. How are you preparing for that potential contingency and what effect has remote learning had on the law school community? Oh, great question. You know, let me first clarify um, the university's position with respect to the current instruction modality. So as you just stated, we have started the semester off extremely well with in-person instruction and we have a number of safety protocols in place, mask mandate, a vaccine mandate with limited exceptions. So what happened last week was that the faculty union and the university reached an agreement about when an individual faculty member could have the election to return to remote instruction. But there are two triggers that have to come into play for that. Either we return as a state to phase four or the on-campus testing positivity rate exceeds 8%. And to put that all in context, we're at 1.7% right now. And last year when we didn't even have the vaccine, we didn't get any higher than like 5.3%. I'm saying this to tell you that we are hoping and planning to remain in person. Um, we're so excited to be back on campus with in-campus activities and just those informal meetings and greetings that happen in the hallway that we just didn't have last year. So we really don't want to return to in-person, but if the climate, the pandemic is such that um, that is needed, we can easily pivot because last year we did remote instruction for the entire year and we're quite successful at it. That's Dean Cassandra Hill of NIU. You can find her next Tuesday, August 31st, moderating the next race and law conversation with U.S. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. Find out more about that 
at niutoday.info. Dean Hill, thank you so much for joining us and thank you very much for the insight. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020. Designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey & Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Moving on to our next segment here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Just yesterday, I-290 was shut down after a shooting on the expressway resulted in two people heading to the hospital. With that, we bring in Rachel Murphy, a staff attorney at ACLU of Illinois. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Rachel, yesterday marked the 159th shooting in Cook County so far in 2021. That's up from 43, 52, 128 in the last three years. Obviously, this is a growing issue, um, and Illinois State Police have begun to install cameras on the expressways in the wake of a law that was passed back in January, or it took effect back in January 20th. This is the law named after uh, Tamara Clayton, who was driving to work along I-57 in February 2020 when she was shot and killed. Um, What is the ACLU's position on cameras on expressways? The ACLU is always concerned about um, how these kinds of technologies are being implemented and what kinds of oversight there is. Um, So when you install cameras on an expressway, you know, we want to make sure that um, this isn't going to be used to surveil people rather than, you know, used for some legitimate law enforcement, public safety purpose. Um, And so what we see a lot of the times is that technology is um, acquired or implemented and there aren't sufficient policies or oversight or public notice about how it will be used and what kinds of um, limitations will be in place to ensure that um, it doesn't infringe upon people's civil liberties. What kind of oversight um, and restrictions would you want to see in place before this is put into effect? I think it generally depends on um, the nature of the technology and the capabilities that it has. But, um, you know, there there needs to be sufficient policies in place regarding who can access the data, um, depending on what it's capable of. Sometimes, you know, we've heard talk about facial recognition or AI being um, added to surveillance cameras. 
which raises a ton of concerns because um, that can lead to people abusing the technology and following people on their day-to-day lives for, you know, there's without any basis for following them or legal justification. And um, we really want to ensure that there's a robust public discussion about whether the community wants this kind of technology and um, what purposes it will serve and to make sure that there's a sufficient um, balance there. Yeah, talk to us if you can about your perspective and your organization's perspective on whether that robust discussion takes place in these situations when these shootings, of course, get so much notoriety, um, both nationally and internationally. Frequently, it's all people think of now when they think of Chicago. So the uh, possibility of a rush to judgment is always there, right? It's uh, it's very easy to say, let's spend a lot of money on crime-finding technology like cameras. Let's put more police on the streets. But there's a balance there. I know you're concerned about. Uh, talk to us about that that balance between you know what might be an attractive solution to the public um, when you hear about shootings and what the other implications might be. Sure. So you know, just this morning, the Office of the Inspector General in Chicago released a report about shot spotter technology, finding that um, it actually, you know, in only a fraction of the notifications, but what shot spotter does is it alerts when it sounds like there's been um, a firearm shot off and it it sends an alert and officers are dispatched. And um, they released a report after studying data, finding that, um, you know, only in a fraction of alerts was it actually did it actually lead to an interaction where there was some kind of um suspicion that there was actually a, a firearm involved crime and it actually changed the way that officers interacted with people in those communities um and so it raised a lot of questions about is this an effective technology is it worth the 33 million dollar contract that we Chicago has spent on it for a three-year contract. Um, so is it is it worth the money? Is it worth the, the interactions it's leading to in these communities? And I think that those are the kinds of questions we need to have with any of these technologies that law enforcement acquires. A lot of times they may sound really good and really useful, but you have to ask, um, is it really worth the money? Could that money be better used by investing in something that will build up the community, um, improve relations with the community so that they actually trust the police and they will help with investigation. There are so many um, underutilized tools that I think, you know, there's, it's always attractive to have some fancy expensive technology, but it doesn't always mean that that's the best solution. Uh, Rachel, the representative, uh, Thaddeus Jones, who sponsored the bill, said that concerns like the ones expressed by the ACLU don't adequately uh, take into account the rights of the victims of these kind of shootings. Uh, what's your response to that criticism? I think, you know, what our position is that we don't want people's civil liberties to be infringed. And um, that includes everybody in the public. And um, what we find is that a lot of times law enforcement agencies 
you know, are quick to acquire these technologies and these um, systems, they do it quietly. So most people don't even know about it until there's some kind of tip that leads to a FOIA request. And then we get slowly um, some information about it. And I think that uh, it's really important for there to be a public discussion because then you can actually take into account, you know, victims can come forward and talk about what they'd like to see. Um, family members, people that are, will be in the communities most impacted can then actually express their opinions and there can be an actual debate versus, you know, this trickle of information, you know, months or years after technology has been acquired and used and led to, you know, who knows what. That's Rachel Murphy of the ACLU of Illinois. Rachel, thanks so much for the insight today. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. On to the next topic here on the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Hobby Lobby is ordered to pay $220,000 to a transgender employee banned from the women's restroom. With that, we bring in Katie Christie, Senior Trial Attorney at Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And I just want to add, I'm speaking today on behalf of myself, not on behalf of the EEOC. Of course, Katie, the Illinois Second District Appellate Court, as Joe mentioned, ruled that uh, your client, Megan Somerville Sex, was unquestionably female and that Hobby Lobby unlawfully discriminated her against her based on her gender identity. Obviously, very significant ruling. Can you explain to our listeners why this case was one of first impression in Illinois and also its significance, not just in our state, but across the country? Sure. Great question. Um, the Illinois Human Rights Act was amended in 2006. Uh, Megan had filed her charges with the Illinois Department of Human Rights in 2011. So it just it may not have been well publicized in terms of the amendment to the act that hers was the first case or just maybe that hers was the first case. Um, but it is a case in first impression, meaning that the courts have not looked at that issue in the state of Illinois since the act has been amended. Um, this act um, specifically has its own definitions related to gender identity and sex, so it is specific to the state, but it does have broader implications like you mentioned. Um, I think you'll see ripple effects nationwide, and they'll also piggyback off the federal decisions in the Title IX cases that we're seeing, such as um, the, the Grimm case. Now, this issue wasn't exactly addressed in the 2020 uh, Supreme Court Bostock decision. Could you explain to us why there was this gap after that uh, had been decided? Yes, Bostock specifically said they weren't going to address such issues, that that was left for a later date. And it's a little bit different because Bostock said that gender identity discrimination is encompassed in sex because that entails discrimination based on sex. Under the Illinois Human Rights Act, sex is the status of being male or female. So Megan's um, sex is female under the act and they discriminated her, against her on that basis. And that's because when they provided sex segregated bathrooms, they said women 
provide one bathroom, which is totally fine. Men are provided another, totally fine. But that women's restroom should include all women, including transgendered women. And the men's restroom should include all men, including transgender men. Now, the court ruled against Hobby Lobby's argument, specifically that um, a person's sex is an immutable condition. Uh, your client, this was not something that had just started. This has been a battle that she's been waging against Hobby Lobby for many years. And um, she had been disciplined for using the women's bathroom. Um, she had uh, many health problems, including recurring nightmares about bathrooms. She was assaulted and mocked by men. Uh, the bathroom ban drove her to limit her fluid, fluid intake. Obviously, this decision was a huge relief for her. But can you talk to us about the effect that this had on her for simply wanting to use a bathroom for a gender you know, that she identifies with? Um, obviously, this had to have a huge impact on her emotionally, psychologically through the many years she was fighting this battle. Absolutely. And it's been a huge delay for her. I mean, we got the initial ruling on liability or the recommended ruling on liability in 2015. And so justice delayed is justice denied. Right. And so even with this ruling, it was not determined whether or not she could go to work on Monday and use that female restroom without repercussions from her employer. Uh, she found out last Tuesday that they were finally going to let her. So that that I think was the momentous day for her. She's seen these rulings and they come along and she's very proud of them. And, and I'm very proud of her for standing up for those rights and making this law. But the effect of them wasn't being felt for her until last Tuesday. And it did take a very big emotional toll on her. I mean, she really enjoys her job. She's continued to work for Hobby Lobby through all this. And she doesn't feel like she should have to leave her employment in order not to face discrimination. But yes, it, it definitely took a toll on her. Um, when we were at the trial on damages, uh, her parents spoke to that, she spoke to that, and the, the judge saw that and understood it. What has been the reaction in the community um, since this decision has come down? Has she received, I imagine, a lot of support, a lot of feedback that must be very gratifying for her? You know, frequently you hear about these decisions and you see a name on a piece of paper that is in a case title. You don't really think about the emotional toll that the person, the lead you know, plaintiff has to go through. Um, but these are actually people who have to live with this. And I hope and I anticipate that some of the reception that she's now received has been very favorable and has maybe helped her um, after all those years of struggle. Yes. Um, and I think she has gotten a lot of favorable feedback. And I can tell you there's a it's a big difference from, like I said, in 2015, there was some press around the liability decision. And um, there were some really negative things that were said about her and about the case in general, and about us as her attorneys. And, and I, I can see a change. I can see the feedback there. There's a definite change from 2015 to today. And there's a big change since we initially looked at this case. We looked, started looking at this in 2012 after the department threw out the case and said, you don't have a finding of substantial evidence here. There's no discrimination. So we first had to reverse the department to get to the commission. And I think just in that getting the department to have that understanding was a big first step. And I do see that there's um, a definitely a different reaction now today than we did see in the past. Last question. Do you think that this is the end of this case? Uh, has Hobby Lobby indicated that they'll be appealing? And, and how do you think, given the current makeup of the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court, what do you think the prospects uh, for this decision are going forward? 
So they have until um, September 17th, I believe, in order to make their decision on the appeal. And that would go to the Illinois Supreme Court. Right. Um, they have not raised constitutional issues. They didn't raise religious objections. So I, I don't see it moving beyond the Supreme Court. And, and I just uh, I hate to speculate about what they're going to decide to do. Hopefully this this is it. Um, I, I think it would be a very high burden for them to overcome uh, before the Illinois Supreme Court to change this uh, great decision. That's Katie Christie here on the WGN Legal Faceoff podcast. Thank you so much for the insight today. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio brings us to the topic of some artwork from President Biden's son, Hunter, going up for sale. And in order to prevent any favoritism from behind the scenes, the White House says they will not know who buys the artwork. With that, we bring in Jessica Tillipman, who uh, teaches an anti-corruption course and is also an assistant dean at George Washington University for Government Procurement Law Studies. Professor Tillipman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Professor, as Joe mentioned, there's been a lot of talk about an art gallery in Soho that's planning to sell some works by President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. Ordinarily, a story like this wouldn't necessarily be all that newsworthy, but this situation is a bit different. Uh, why, why is this story attracting so much attention, and can you fill us in on some of the details? Sure thing. Well, uh, you know, with, with respect to some of the details, at the end of the day, uh, we're dealing with the president's son, Hunter Biden, um, who is a, a budding artist, apparently. I can't vouch for it, but according to the news reports, is a budding artist. Uh, whose art um, is now going to be sold at a gallery uh, in the range of um, five to six uh, figures. So we're talking um, some of them going for as much as 500000 a piece. So, so clearly uh, that has uh, raised some eyebrows given that he's A, a new artist, B, the son of the president, uh, uh, you know, C, also has some kind of history of, uh, of engaging in uh, work opportunities that might be somewhat questionable. Um, and, you know, given the recent ethics issues that we've seen in the most recent administration, I think there's a lot of concern about the potential of a child of a president potentially profiting off of uh, a parent's business or giving favoritism to whatever entity might do business with them. 
So talk to us about those guidelines and specifically whether, in your opinion, they suffice in this case. Sure. So so from an ethics law perspective, uh, it doesn't cover this situation. The adult child of the president and president, as we learned um, in the Trump administration, is, is exempt from a lot of the ethics regulations. Um, but specifically here, the adult child wouldn't necessarily be covered anyway, even if we were talking about some other government official. So we're not really talking about ethics law here. We're really talking about an optics issue, whether it's appropriate for the son of the president to, to earn this type of money as a, as a new artist and whether there should be concern about people who want to do business with this administration or want to have favors from this administration, somehow, you know, getting around ethics restrictions by going through this art deal, buying his buying his work for this purpose. So that's really what we're talking about is, a, is, a, is an optics issue. And, and the concern here is really the lack of transparency that we're seeing with this deal. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the guidelines are specifically? Um, I, I think it relates to whether or not the buyers will be disclosed. Sure thing. So it appears that the White House has kind of inserted themselves into this arrangement. And, and the goal of what they've tried to accomplish here is to really make all of this confidential. They, they've effectively outsourced the, the vetting um, component of this to this gallery you know, gallery owner who's going to be selling the artwork. Um, and what the agreement says is that, you know, Hunter Biden will not have knowledge of who any of the buyers are. And the goal of this per the White House is that by keeping all of this confidential so that no one in the White House or Hunter Biden knows who is potentially purchasing this artwork, that way nothing can be tainted. He doesn't know if anyone's trying to curry favor because he has no knowledge of who's buying the artwork. The, the downside to this is obviously uh, that, uh, A, there's there's indications that he will likely be meeting with prospective buyers at the gallery. So that kind of, you know, undermines a little bit about the confidentiality of this, though he uh, allegedly won't ultimately know who the buyer is. Um, and then there's also concern, again, about this confidentiality being maintained by this third party, this this art dealer, this art gallery owner um, handling this entire you know process. And it's definitely trickier, right, when it comes to selling art, because as you mentioned in the New York Times piece, you know, the art world is famously fraught with shady deals, speculative prices, uh, money laundering, you know, art thievery. So the fact that we're dealing with an area of commerce that is inherently a little bit, you know, suspect sometimes makes it a little more complicated from an ethics perspective, right? Well, certainly, I, if you think about it, if, if Hunter Biden was saying that, you know, maybe he owns a car repair shop and he, you know, repairs cars, we typically know what a market value is associated with certain types of services provided there. We can we can measure it against any type of objective, um, you know, standard. But in this particular instance, we're, we're dealing with the art world, which really is, you know, if you were to tell me it's worth five hundred thousand dollars for a painting. Okay, I don't know. I'm not an art person. And there's no real objective standard there by there. We can say that this is way above market value or this is, you know, well within market value. The fact that he's a new artist certainly has raised some eyebrows. Again, as somebody who's who's into the law and not necessarily the art, I can't verify that. But it does raise a little bit of suspicion as to whether or not these exorbitant prices are because of who his father is and not because of the quality of his work. So if it were up to you, Professor, what do you think would be the best approach here 
just to confirm from an optics perspective as well as an ethics perspective that this situation is being dealt with appropriately and keeping in mind, of course, you know, that the Biden administration having a say in this certainly looks like a conflict also. Um, but, you know, you're probably more of an expert than we are necessarily on that. Well, I think at the end of the day, when we're talking about ethics laws, it's a situation that always demands more transparency and not less. You know, when we're dealing with criminal laws and, and corruption issues, I always say that those those laws really deal with actual impropriety. Ethics laws really get to the core of the appearance of impropriety. We want to make sure we know our government officials are acting in our best interest as taxpayers and citizens, not for private gain. And so from an ethics perspective, again, even though the laws don't necessarily apply here, we would really love to see more transparency. Just go ahead and disclose who these buyers are so that we know if one of them tries to, you know, do business with the government or seek some sort of favor or opportunity with this current administration, then we as the public can verify or vouch or vet whether or not this was appropriate or not. So to me, at the end of the day, more transparency is what we want, not less, which is unfortunately the route that the current administration has taken. That's Jessica Tillman, professor and dean at George Washington University. You can find her on Twitter, too, at Jay Tillman on Twitter. Professor, thank you so much for the knowledge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag portion of our Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. One of our first two guests, Chuki Obio, founder and chief coaching officer of Chuki Law and senior business development manager at Vetter Price. Chuki, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Along with Josh Moulton, owner and artist at Josh Moulton Fine Art Gallery. Josh, thanks for being here as well. Thanks for having me. Tina, we start today. Wait, you got you got to also do justice to Molten's three point shot. Remember, Josh, Josh <laughs> and I have played together in a regular Wednesday pickup league for what, Josh? Like seven, eight years at least. Yeah. And Josh is the king of the threes, range threes <laughs> over me all day. Sometimes I I'm known to throw a couple elbows, Josh, to throw you off your game, but inevitably you just step back and drain that Detroit that Detroit playground era three. Spot on, <laughs> Rich. Uh, Rich is a little aggressive on the basketball court. No. Me? I can't imagine. And after reading his bio about his, um, how he's. <laughs> well, will he use Detroit style for you and you're calling him the bad boy? I, I don't know. That seems. Yeah, really I, I grew up in the mean streets of Montreal, Canada. The, mean, <laughs> the legendary basketball courts of suburban Montreal. Love it. Well, we start today's legal grab bag with the threat of lawsuits, Tina, involving both mask and vaccine mandates. Yeah. So as you said, Joe, mask mandates and vaccines, whether they're required or not, is all over the news, especially with the Delta variant raging throughout the country and the world. Um, And we're seeing interesting things in different states and different venues. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has banned mask mandates in schools and has required that schools in Florida provide an opt-out for parents. There have been about a half a dozen school districts since then that have defied this mask mandate and are uh, and the mask mandate opt-out and are requiring that the students wear masks. So the debate is now in the Florida courts um, in a three-day trial where Florida parents are challenging the DeSantis administration's mask mandate opt-out. 
parents are saying that they're not trying to get the DeSantis administration to require masks. They're just trying to get them to leave it to the school boards to make the decision ultimately about whether or not masks should be mandated. What's interesting is you contrast this and compare it to um, an interesting article that appeared in Wall Street Journal was an op-ed piece um, about a, um, a professor who's at George Mason University who is talking about how he has sued the university for being required to be vaccinated if he wants to conduct in-person teaching without a mask and without being subject to um, weekly testing. Um, it, it's interesting. I mean, he claims that he's gotten COVID already. And for that reason, he has better immunity than any vaccine could afford him. And he went into great detail about how effective or ineffective from his frame of reference each of the different vaccines is. So, Rich, I think that the debate is going to continue. It's interesting. I think that both sides have some interesting arguments. I mean, ultimately, for me, it's it's very clear what, as it relates to the Florida parents that I, I think their position is correct, but I think each side is presenting great arguments. So, Sorry, I don't think the arguments are that great on the, you know, anti-mandate uh, side. I mean, this is falling... Obviously, as we've talked about before, you know, along political lines, right? The conservative states don't want to mandate mass or vaccine. The non-conservative states do. I mean, Illinois, it's interesting because Illinois, our governor is being sued for mass mandates. Florida is being sued for banning mass mandates. You know, it all comes down to the old saying, which is um, your right to swing your fists ends at the edge of my nose, right? It's like... Liberty is important. Rights are important. But even Trump said the other day at his rally in Alabama, yeah. rights are important. But, you know, he is getting the vaccine. So it's all political nonsense. I mean, get the vaccine, wear a mask. Obviously, COVID is raging. And uh, in almost every lawsuit where someone has challenged the state's ability, the government's ability to mandate safety protocols, they've lost in Illinois, in Florida, all across the board. So um, I think they're going to lose pretty much across the board. But Chuki, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Tina makes the point that there are decent arguments on both sides. And I resonate with that. Right. But I think the story behind the story here is just the breakdown in relationships. Right. So if you look at the governor of Florida, I wonder how his relationships are with those uh, local school districts. Right. Uh, are those the districts that voted for him, you know, or not? I mean, some of those dynamics may be at play here to your point, Rich, about some of the politics. Uh, but I also think of the concept of local control, right? How localized is local control? You know, state, it's funny, state governments assert local control when it benefits them and it's convenient. Exactly. But exactly, you know, when sort especially of- Especially uh, conservative, by the way, especially conservative. If you're a conservative like DeSantis, you believe in less government control. Exactly. Like when, it, when it's not convenient for you, then you want to assert right. that your local government can't enforce a mass mandate. That's not that's just convenient. That's your, that's conservatism when it's convenient to you. Spot on. Josh, and if you're pro life, right. and if you're pro life, why not try and save lives with uh, wearing masks? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know it's like yeah it's a, it's it's a lot of like you know political dogmatism when it's convenient to you but yeah we'll see. Well, I'd like to think that the parents in Florida are going to win because they want to have their kids safe. They want to have their kids wearing masks so that they don't get sick. I completely get that. 
problem is the Florida Supreme Court is made up of, you know, conservatives like DeSantis. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know if it'll be decided there. It might go up to the Supreme Court because it really is a constitutional issue when you think about it. So it might be ripe for the Supremes. We'll see. What started as a Netflix documentary two years ago acknowledging R. Kelly accused actions towards young women is now about a week into its trial hearing, Tina. So this is a story, Joe, as you know, and our listeners know, we've been covering periodically here on Legal Faceoff. The federal trial of R. Kelly started in, in Brooklyn last week. Through yesterday, there have been eight witnesses so far that have testified against him. He also has a federal trial in Illinois um, that's going on as well that will be moving forward a, a bit later this year. Um, as the listeners know, R. Kelly is facing a whole host of charges, including racketeering, sex trafficking, bribery, and kidnapping. Um, for those of you who are following this closely, which I would imagine Rich is, there was some very explicit testimony given yesterday by um, someone who identifies herself as one of the Jane Doe's um, telling in pretty shocking detail what seems to be something we've heard a lot of now, which is really a, a pattern of behavior by R. Kelly. Um, they met when she was 15. The relationship became sexual pretty um, soon thereafter. Um, he, he promised to make her a star. He got her pregnant. Um, he was pitting her against some of the other women that were in his life, saying he just needed to get rid of them in order to have then be able to be in an exclusive relationship. Um, I mean, really a pattern of conduct of being a, a predator. And this trial is expected to go for on for about a month. Um, the jury is um, anonymous and is going to be remaining partially sequestered and is consistent of uh, seven men and five women. Um, and it's just really shocking and appalling, Rich. I mean, something that we've been following for a while, but um, it's it, it's really rather frightening how long this was going on and how many women and people were impacted by his behavior. Yeah, I mean, testimony from uh, yesterday was that he married Aaliyah, as we all know, he married Aaliyah when she was 15. But what this witness said yesterday was that he did so the, so that she could have an abortion. And that was just one of the, you know, interesting kind of shocking pieces of testimony yesterday. But yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this case that's different from a lot of these trials that we've seen is just the, you know, wide ranging pervasiveness of the allegations, how this is really not just, you know, limited to having sex with underage females, but really a wide ranging criminal conspiracy that involves interstate commerce and you know, trafficking and um, forced labor and kidnapping. So uh, the state is really going for, you know, the whole nine yards here. And I think by all accounts, they've got a pretty good case so far. Josh, what are your thoughts on uh, who was once hailed as the king of R&B now facing some pretty serious charges here in New York? Yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking. But, uh, you know, you start you hear a lot of celebrities, not to say they do this type of thing, but they're with fame and fortune comes a lot of uh, discretions and things that they hidden uh, things in the closet that come out and they think they can get away with everything. And you can't always get away with everything and things come out later on in life and you should be held responsible no matter what this, I don't know, the statute of limitations hasn't run out on this one. Right. Right. I think there's still, yeah. So. Uh, Chuki, what's your take on this one? 
Yeah, Rich, to your point about the wide range of allegations here, I think it's interesting how the federal prosecutors are structuring this around effectively a, a racketeering is Tina reference. So part of this is a, a RICO case, right? So there's a whole conspiracy, a whole criminal enterprise involved. On one hand, it's sort of like R. Kelly as John Gotti or Al Capone, right? And look, in a court of public opinion, that may not be bad PR, right? That's on one hand. But then on the other hand, you have the ability for these prosecutors to be a, a little bit more creative with uh, how they bring evidence to the fore, uh, in addition to, you know, bringing up sort of, you know, other actors, you know, possible uh, affiliates to R. Kelly, you know, part of his entourage. Um, so that part of it is interesting. But I just think that dynamic of R. Kelly as sort of a godfather figure and then this idea of evidence collection, you know, that plays really interesting to see how it sort of uh, resonates broadly as, you know, as precedent or even, you know, as it relates to the case here in uh, the state of Illinois. Moving on to a somewhat similar topic, another musician being accused of sexual abuse towards a minor is Bob Dylan. Although, Rich, the accuser is dating the event back to 1965. Yeah, speaking of statute of limitations, uh, this suit was, lawsuit was filed late Friday on the eve of the closure of the New York Child Victims uh, Act look-back window. So, yeah, this does go back a while. Uh, this accuser, who is unnamed, is now 68 years old. She lives in Connecticut, and she alleges that Bob Dylan, when she was 12 years old, gave her drugs and alcohol uh, before sexually abusing her at the Chelsea Hotel uh, again in 1965. She says that Dylan established a connection to lower her inhibitions and then sexually abuse her after giving her drugs and alcohol and threats of physical violence um, of course, Dylan, through his spokesmen, have denied this allegation. Um, and what's interesting here, as is often the case, and I think it's very problematic, is, you know, this goes back 56 years old, right? And I think the difficulty speaking fairly and, and in full deference of due process is how are you supposed to rely on evidence that is, you know, almost six decades old? Now, we are uh, thankfully of the mind now to believe accusers. And to, you know, give them their proper deference, especially considering how difficult it is to come forward after years of, of, of abuse. Right. So you have to give deference to the accuser and believe her. On the other hand, listen, we believe in due process. And when you're dealing with accusations that go back to the mid 1960s, there's inherently some reliability issues there and credibility issues there. So let her have her day in court. Perhaps Dylan will settle. Perhaps she'll never see her day in court. But, you know, as the years go by, obviously memories lapse, witnesses, you know, pass away. So that's the difficulty with these kind of cases. Tina? Yeah, no, I agree with you, Rich. I, I think that, you know, there are some states where there is no statute of limitations for these types of crimes. And I, I do think that we, we have to keep in mind the need to give deference to the accuser, especially because of the very nature of the crime. It is burned in their memories forever. They are haunted by these types of crimes forever. And I agree with you, Rich, that due process is critically important and ultimately will depend on the nature of the evidence that's put forward and whether it's credible or not. But because of the nature of the crime, and how people 
um, understandably react and remember detail, that's something that has to be kept in mind as well. Chuki, do you think that in the wake of the Bill Cosby uh, conviction, do you think people are maybe a little bit more emboldened to come forward even after decades have passed in these kind of allegations? Uh, I do, Rich. And I think Tina makes a really good point about deference to the accuser, right? I mean, the lifelong trauma of some of these experiences is just absolutely unspeakable. So yes, uh, in a world where we have the facilities and the amenities, legally speaking, to really allow these stories to be told, I say the accuser deserves uh, her story, his story being told. Absolutely. Josh, you, you talked earlier about statute of limitations. I mean, should there be any statute of limitations for sexual abuse of this kind, do you think? Or is it reasonable to say after a certain amount of years, you know, your time is is expired and you can't bring these allegations anymore, again, because of the difficulties with reliability of evidence after a certain period of time? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. Obviously, there are a lot of maybe witnesses that aren't around anymore and people's memories have changed in 56 years. But I don't think that should keep um, someone who was abused from coming forward and getting their justice do justice. We also have to keep in mind that I don't know if Bob Dylan has ever had any other accusers that have said he's done stuff like this. Um, and then also it was the 1960s. So there was a lot of free love and drugs and alcohol going around back then, especially in Bob Dylan's circle. So, you know, the age situation, I think she was what, 15 or something like that, she said. So that's disturbing. Um, but, you know, she's she's welcome to come forward, I think, and 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 get her justice if she was abused. Hasn't been accused of this before, but been accused of being a terrible singer, for sure. <laughs> Bob Dylan, a good singer. Have we, can we overrated? I know, Tina, that Sussler loves Bob and, Dylan. And if he has it's to funny you should uh, bring him up because I was going to say, David thinks that he's a terrific singer. And it's been a debate in our house now for 25 years about whether Dylan is a good singer or not. Right up there with Neil Young. And if, and Neil Young, to, Neil Young, yes, as a Canadian. You're just saying that because he's a Canadian. Bob we Dylan, all know that. no. Bob Dylan, awful singer. But, uh, most overrated singer of all time. If Dylan does have to testify, we might not be able to understand what he says. That's right. <laughs> nah, yeah, yeah. Let's do a whole show sounding like Bob Dylan, Rich. Nah, <laughs> yeah, th- those are some pretty harsh critiques. Most overrated singer ever. But Neil Diamond is a... Is a a caliber singer, uh, according to your ears. Don't touch Diamond. I'll just, uh, we'll, we'll go off on a tangent. Bob you... Dylan is a terrific songwriter. I will give him that. Has written some of the best songs of our generation. And, and Neil Diamond is only a diamond in Canada. Uh, the parents of a young girl are, <laughs> parents of a young girl are suing Food Network star Jet Tilla Rich because they say that the family's dog attacked their daughter. And we're on quite a run of dog bite stories lately. Uh, They're becoming more common, but I guess calling this person a star is the first issue. I mean, I had never heard of Jet Tilla and I consider myself a Food Network maven. So I don't know. I don't know (laughs) Jet Tilla, but yeah, uh, the the lawsuit alleges that he rented a playground at the preschool attended by this victim and Tilla's son day after Christmas. And uh, the dog Halo was originally leashed to a table, but his wife, Tilla's wife, Allison, chose to relinquish personal control. By the way, is there ever a more legal way of saying 
unleash the dog. I mean, that's what that's the problem with lawyers, right? Chose to relinquish personal control of Halo. Uh, and then uh, the daughter went up to the dog and it snapped, barked and attacked her and bit her in the face. The, uh, the lawsuit says that she is permanently disfigured, of course. There's no lawsuit that ever says, by the way, that you are temporarily disfigured. It's always permanently disfigured. And here's the key that they knew that Tilla knew that his dog could be aggressive, vicious, and excessively dangerous. So that's the key to every dog bite case, right? Because in certain states, you get what's known as a free dog bite, which means that if you were not aware that your dog had any proclivity to aggression or speaking of legalese, by the way, or um, you know was, was, was prone to attack people, then you're not responsible legally. In other states, it's a strict liability standard, meaning it doesn't matter, you're the owner of the dog. And if a dog bites someone, you're on the hook. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, Tina, if uh, Jetilla, his dog, had these proclivities before. Yeah, it's hard to tell. But, you know, also, why would she have relinquished personal control? Right. Exactly. Especially when you are around other children in a playground who you don't know. I mean, yes. it, it, to me, that is a, that is reasonably foreseeable. Um, particularly if it is found that Jet and his wife knew that his that his that their dog had these proclivities, I think those two things together are pretty damning for them. Well, yeah, I think it's a great point. And Chuki, the, the the kid went up to the dog. Yeah. It's a dog, by the way. It's a beast. <laughs> it's an animal. I mean, don't you have some personal responsibility as the parents of the kid to protect your kid and not have them go up to you know, an animal. Yeah, Rich, look, uh, three points to make on this. Uh, first, you know, a bit of a disclaimer. I politely push back on your point about Tilla. He is an executive chef of the highest order, okay. right? Of the highest order. <laughs> my wife and I, my wife and I have benefited from a, a number of recipes. Uh, really? So again, disclaimer, yeah. So he's, he's, uh, a, he's thai, a Thai uh, chef, right? Exactly, he is. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that's point one. Uh, point two, this goes back to something I said earlier about the story behind the story, right? This is a preschool event. Couldn't the parents talk? I mean, what, what sort of, what was the conversation flow? How does a dog get off the leash, right? I mean, it's just really interesting to think of the breakdown in relationships. But again, to your point, uh, this probably should be resolved outside of a lawsuit, uh, be my my take on this. Are you a dog Everything. owner? Uh, are you a dog owner? Chuk? Not a, not a dog owner. Now this this particular breed though was a Belgian Shepherd. So if we know anything about Belgian Shepherds, uh, they're not as aggressive, but they do require a lot of exercise. So maybe the dog just needed some exercise. <laughs> have you eaten at the Dragon Tiger Noodle Company? I have not eaten at the restaurant, but uh, I certainly uh, have access to some of the recipes. What's everyone's go-to uh, Thai Thai dish? I would say, I mean, pad thai is, you know, pretty good. Uh, also, the combination fried Thai rice uh, is also legit. Ooh, that's delicious. Yeah. Josh, you like uh, you like a Thai Thai meal? Well, our favorite uh, Thai restaurant is Joy, Joy Noodles in, on uh, Broadway, and I'd say Crazy Noodles with barbecue pork or uh, Pad Woon Sen with Whoa. chicken. Well, Pad Woon Sen's good stuff. I'm not messing yeah. around. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Tina, what's the best? Uh, give a commercial for the best Thai place up in Evanston, Illinois. 
can't do that because the best Thai restaurant's not in Evanston. Um, ah. Ah. My favorite dish is I love the curries. So Penang curry with chicken. I like super spicy. So. Wow. Joe Brand, you enjoy a spicy Thai meal? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I probably should have gone first because I, I don't have as, as much of an opinion on this. I like I like pad Thai, but I'm not as very uh, cultured with it. I mean, I like kind of like Tina, anything with a little bit of kick, anything with some chicken, uh, uh, it will pretty much uh, do it for me. But no, I don't have a signature dish that I always go to or anything like that. I feel like our next episode of Legal Face Off will inevitably be sponsored by a Thai restaurant. So <laughs> we're just saying that we're available for free samples in exchange for our shout out well something else i I heard that the writers of the simpsons are going back and they're changing every time mr burns says release the hounds to relinquish personal control (laughs) because you know that's the more proper way to say it a better tagline uh we head to anarchy in the uk and on fx johnny rotten lead singer of the sex pistols lost his legal battle against the rest of the band for licensing their music, Tina. Yeah, so everybody who listens to Legal Face-Off with some regularity knows that Rich and I like to cover 80s bands and the lead singers that, uh, you know, are cry are crybabies, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. So um, last week, Sex Pistols frontman Johnny Rotten lost his lawsuit, as Joe mentioned, against his bandmates Steve Jones and Paul Cook. Um, Steve and Paul wanted to license the band's music um, for an FX production of Steve Jones' memoir about the band. Apparently, Johnny Rotten didn't really like the memoir, didn't really approve of how he was depicted in it, and he had vetoed um, using and licensing the band's music to that production. There's actually a contract in case um, you've got some Sex Pistols fans out there. This is going to make you feel old. The band has a contract dating back to 1988 that dictates um, how decisions are supposed to be made with respect to licensing of the band's music. And um, it was actually Cook and Jones who brought the lawsuit against uh, Johnny Rotten. Johnny Rotten said this agreement that said that a majority vote um, had never been adhered to, meaning that a majority of the three of them would have to make decisions about how the music would be treated. What would it be licensed? Would it not be? Johnny said that this agreement was never adhered to. And given that each member had the ability to veto the entire thing, a judge disagreed. And so um, Cook and Jones won. And now it looks like their music will be appearing in the FX special. I love how, you know, a band and a singer that has fashioned their career on anarchy decide to avail themselves of government institutions <laughs> like courts when things don't go their way. Where's the anarchy? How can why, don't, why can't they resolve this through some other means? There's a lot truly, of irony, not anarchy. Yeah, there's exactly. irony. <laughs> That's the irony that, oh, we don't believe in you know government or institutions until we need some you know legal recourse. Then we're gonna abide by the constructs of the law it's amazing well maybe he and morrissey should hang out sometime together yeah guys what are your thoughts on this josh um yeah i'm not super familiar with the sex pistols not my kind of music but um you know as an artist i think it's important for artists to have rights over what they produce and if i don't know what kind of legal agreement he had initially but as a band i i would think they should all have equal rights 
to to say when their music gets um, licensed for different products. Um, but you know, legally, I'm not sure what they had going on contract wise. Chuki, this is a 1988 contract. It, it, oh, there you go. A uh, little, little dated. <laughs> a little dated for sure. So Josh's point though about just the contractual nature of this, right? So look, if you decide that you want to be in a band and there are more than two people in that band, really it's an odd numbered band, right? Three, five, seven. Uh, let's have contracts where majority does not rule or if majority rules, just be the person that's with the majority. I mean, that's, it's just that simple. Be popular with the majority. And I think uh, you'll uh, push back on some of these types of uh, disputes. Um, so yeah, he's just, I think he's a little bit upset that he's in a minority on this. He really doesn't like the fact that he wasn't depicted as well as he would have liked to have been in the memoir. I mean, I think that's what this is really about. Yeah, it's similar. There was a, uh, there was a documentary about the Fab Five that came out a few years ago on ESPN. And there was a, a difference of opinion between Jalen Rose and Chris Webber and yeah. Jalen was Jalen was doing the documentary and Chris Webber was very upset about the way he was depicted in the uh, documentary because he, he didn't really have a say in it because he wasn't involved. Um, but yeah, there's always always some kind of heartache between uh, old married couples, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Tina, couldn't he just write his own memoir and, you know, set the record straight? That yeah. would require some effort, right? <laughs> <laughs> Easier to sue. We head to California, where these bears are not your average bears. I've heard of trash pandas, but this is something to the next level. A man is suing a condo building after injuring himself, after finding a ferocious surprise in the building dumpster, Rich. And he was going to throw away his dog's uh, poop in the dumpster, and he had to fiddle with the, the latch. I guess it wasn't closed. And to his surprise, a bear jumped out of the dumpster. He, you know, was startled and fell backwards, twisted his ankle and his leg and fell on his back. He then required Achilles tendon surgery and spinal surgery. And that was suing the association saying that they were aware, the condo association was aware of this problem with bears and failed to remedy it or failing to tell residents or guests of this issue. Uh, he's seeking damages, of course, and his legal costs. Um, you know, bears are an issue in Lake Tahoe. Uh, they have been for many years, and uh, there has been an increase. We've probably all seen different videos of, you know, animals like bears becoming way more comfortable with humans because humans are feeding them and leaving food out. Um, so the question here, inevitably, in these lawsuits is to what degree, as we talked about in the dog bite case, you know, what degree do you have personal responsibility for being out in the world, especially in Lake Tahoe? I'm sure there are signs everywhere saying, don't feed bears, beware of bears. Even if there wasn't a sign, you're in Lake Tahoe, right? Most people know that you're there in wilderness, there's bears. On the other hand, you know, as someone who defends these kind of lawsuits all the time and usually thinks that most of them are nonsense, there does seem, you know, the, the key here is notice, just like in the dog bite case. If the association knew of this condition, meaning wild bears roaming around and failed to remedy it, then there is some liability for them. It's not enough to say, well, you should have been aware of it. Uh, it's your responsibility. So, um, I think, like in most cases, there is some degree of comparative fault. And, um, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit better case than, than some we've covered before. But, Tina, have you ever been startled by uh, an angry bear? 
Thank goodness, no. You don't see many of these around Evanston. No. Um, but it does sound like there are a lot of them in Lake Tahoe. And so I think based on the research we've done here on Legal Faceoff, it sounds like it was much more reasonably foreseeable to encounter a bear in garbage because there have been a number of sightings of them. There, there's been discussions about, about measures to be taken to prevent um not necessarily the way that this particular situation played out, but having bears and humans in an encounter where people are in danger. So this was much more reasonably foreseeable than, say, in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, Shuki, this is a harder case than the one. The easier cases are the ones where you see these idiots, you know, go into the zoo enclosures and they're taunting animals and then they get, you know, they get clawed to death and then their states sue the zoo. It's like, yeah, you're an idiot. But this one's a little bit tougher because, uh, you know, he wasn't doing anything wrong. And again, he his allegation is that the Homeowners Association knew about this and because of the broken latch failed to remedy, remedy this issue. Yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting, right? And I, I really welcome Josh's uh, input on this. But I wonder if there's a different way to qualify notice on this, right? What really would constitute notice? Right. Is it just location? Is it something else, something a little bit more uh, upfront? Yeah. So I guess you can't sue Mother Nature, right? Exactly. <laughs> so you have to find someone else to to make some money off of. But I, if it is a responsibility, I would think of the landlords or the condo association to make sure garbage is emptied regularly. So bears are not, you know, actively going through them to get food. Um, and you got to know about your surrounding areas. And there was something on 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago about how the grizzly bear population in the in the West in Montana and is just overrunning the the people right now because people are building in areas where they never used to be able to live, um, and they're moving into the bears' uh, land. So it's you know how do you how do you live together? It's going to be difficult, but you can't just sue every time there's um, an encounter with an animal. Exactly. Joe, this should segue into some kind of Chicago Bears lawsuit <laughs> reference. I mean, I'm shocked that you didn't. We'll, we'll let you ponder that one. <laughs> uh, I something like deal. this, something, something like if anyone should be suing the Bears after last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's pretty hard to top. I, I was trying to think of somehow incorporating Justin Fields, Andy Dalton, what what bear is really trash or something ah, like that. Ah, you see? The, my, the wheels are turning. That, that might be pushing it a little bit too much. Uh, let's move on to young dancers, influencers, and now maybe cold case detectives. TikTok users are coming together to expose what they believe to be the real reasoning a pair of brothers killed their parents. Yeah, these TikTokers are you know, a lot of time on their hands. They're influencers, uh, Rich. Give yeah. them the do their worth. <laughs> they're taking up these old cases. I mean, first of all, uh, Joe, have you heard of the Menendez brothers? Probably not, right? No, I mean, I, I'm dating myself, but I was born shortly after that whole thing. So, no. Yeah. Wow. After the Menendez trial? Yeah, uh, Joe's, Joe's young. Remember. <laughs> The, Ho- I think Jose- I was in law school, Rich. Yeah, I know. It's sad. <laughs> Jose and Kitty Menendez were uh, shot to death in August of 1989. Uh, kind of a viral murder before there was such a thing. Uh, their sons, Lyle and Eric, were ultimately found guilty for the murder. And the question always was whether this was self-defense because uh, the father had allegedly abused them for years and years or whether this was murder uh, to uh, profit from 
their rich parents. And ultimately, the jury found against them and they've been in jail, you know, since then. And recently, the story is here because TikTokers have taken up this case uh, trying to free the Menendez brothers. Um, and there's a whole movement to, to free them again arguing that they were victims of abuse and acted in self-defense. And it's gotten like, you know, millions and millions of views. And it's, it's an actual movement. They're both still alive. They're both serving out their sentences. Um, and it speaks, of course, to the power, as you, as you referenced, you know, social media and influencers. And listen, we've seen a lot of good. We've covered, you know, dozens of cases on our show of cold cases that have been, um, you know, where justice has been served because influencers, TikTokers, Internet sleuths have uncovered information that has, you know, freed people. So probably a good thing to shed light on it. There's nothing, nothing, you know, to be there's only to be gained from it. Um, so we'll see what happens with it. I mean, I have to just question what the nature is of this purported evidence. I agree with you, Rich, that if ultimately you've got a cold case where you end up doing the right thing and justice is ultimately served by resurrecting the case. I'm totally in agreement with, with doing that. It's just, I'm not really sure what kind of evidence the TikTokers can be privy to that maybe let's say the lawyers and other people who were part of the case, you know, 25 plus years ago, were not aware of. I mean, they mentioned that if this case were tried today, it would be a different result. I would say that's a bit conclusory. Um, I'm not so sure that we can rely on that and take that to court, but you know, it is an interesting story nevertheless. Yeah. I mean, to that point, Josh, I think the idea of it being tried today would, you know, give more credence to this whole abuse excuse that was tried back then and was rejected by the jury. I mean, if you, you know, I don't want to dive too much into the weeds of the trial, but no, they were shot. I think they were sleeping when they were shot, right? So the whole idea that it was in self-defense yeah. is, is a, li- a little tough to swallow. So it's not like they were, I don't think when they killed them, they were actively being abused by the parents. The parents were sleeping, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like, they, they're starting to say they were traumatized by the abuse, so that's why they did it. There's there's other means to deal with those things rather than kill somebody. You can go to the police or, you know, <laughs> go to a social worker and tell them your parents are abusing you. Um, rather than shoot them in their sleep. Um, and they weren't just children, right? They were in their teens or 20s, weren't they, when they did that? Yeah. So, I don't know. There's consequences for killing people, I would think. You can't just do it because someone's abused you, but now they're sleeping. Yeah. Chuki, last word on the TikTokers uh, and Menendez. Yeah, look, uh, Rich and Tina and Josh, I think we're not too far removed from having law school classes on TikTok and mock trials on TikTok. So, uh, you know, we should maybe uh, get ahead of that curve. <laughs> well, the whole um, the whole Free Britney thing was bit from a bunch of young people who um, caught on to what was going on and then tried to get her out of that conservatorship. Rich, we need to do this show on TikTok. There you go, Tina. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring my niece, who is like the, the, the biggest expert TikToker I've ever seen. I, I've got a ring light back at home, so I'll bring that. And that's, okay. that's what I can contribute. Yeah, that's awesome. Be sure we, before we go, let's give a little shout out to the Molten Art Gallery. Josh, show us some of your show, show us some of the artwork behind you there. Nice. Right, by the way, my laptop. There's some of my Josh. paintings. Yeah, beautiful. 
Do you have any Hunter Bidens back there? No. By the way, that's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) That's another. We could talk about that next time. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Um, Hey, I got a big fish tank over here. Nice. Yeah. Josh, will you commission? Can we commission a legal face-off? Sure. We still got to do the Montreal Forum for you. That's right. I have, by the way, I have some of Josh's art in my home. It's beautiful. Amazing work. Yeah. He's uh, he's a great artist. So we encourage everyone to, what's the website? Yeah, so the gallery is on Clark Street, just north of Webster, near the Lincoln Park Zoo, 2218 Clark Street. I just had my 10-year anniversary in June. And the uh, website's www.joshmoultonfineart.com. M-O-U-L-T-O-N. Yeah. Also available for three-point instruction anytime. I can still make the three-point shot. <laughs> yeah. That is artist and basketball superstar Josh Moulton, <laughs> along with our other guest of Chuki Obio. Thank you both for joining us today. And thank you for all our other guests, for Tina Martini, Rich Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand. This has been Legal Face off on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.